This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Louis Armstrong singing Zippity Doo Da from the Disney movie Song of the South. And 49 years ago, on this day in history, Walt Disney passed away. A simple Missouri kid whose dreams were more than simple, they were magical and never dreamt before. But he didn't just dream, he pursued them, even when no one believed his dreams could become real. And almost no one ever did. And even when bankruptcy started, stared him straight in the eyes, he continued on until he won, until his dreams won, and we're glad he did. And I'm sure glad that he did too, because in the end, well, he touched all of our lives. The creator of Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Disneyland, and Walt Disney World. He won more Academy Awards than anyone in history, transformed cartoons into an art form with lifelike characters that audiences could relate to. He created the first cartoon with synchronized sound and the first full-color cartoon. We could just keep going on. For the entirety of our show today, we'll be celebrating Walt Disney's life on the day that he died and for our This Day in History segment brought to you by our sponsor, Hillsdale College. But we really needed more time than one show. Maybe next year, we'll do a whole week on the 50th anniversary of this man's death. Joining us now for the whole first hour is a man a little bit obsessed with Walt Disney. Studying the man is almost like a second career for our guest, Pat Williams. Pat is the author of over 80 books on leadership, including How to Be Like Walt, a book so inspiring that you simply can't put it down until you're done. I'll tell you to make a great Christmas gift for any of your loved ones. Pat is also the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic. Pat, as always, thanks for joining us. Lee, great to talk to you. And uh, anytime I get to talk about Walt Disney, well, that's a a good day for me. (laughs) Hey, let's start at the beginning, Pat, because it's interesting. Uh, Although Walt Disney wasn't alive for the founding of the Orlando Magic, without Walt, there wouldn't be a magic, would there? Probably not. I uh, moved down here to Orlando almost 30 years ago uh, with the uh, the goal, the dream of <clears throat> helping to uh, bring an expansion NBA basketball team to Orlando. And we were successful in that venture. Uh, we're now in our 27th season. But in addition to that basketball dream, I'll tell you what else happened to me, Lee. I got Disneyized. <laughs> which is very easy to do when you come to visit Orlando. And I got particularly fascinated uh, with the life of Walt Disney himself. I began to run into senior Disney executives here who had worked with Walt back in California, and I was always picking their brain, always asking them to tell me about Walt. And uh, that eventually led to a book called Go for the Magic, in which I wrote about Walt Disney's Five Secrets of Success, And then that led to the biggie, uh, How to Be Like Walt, in which I tracked down every single person I could find who knew Walt, wrote about him, or had worked with him back in uh, the day in California. And it was a fascinating project. And so I'm uh, completely absorbed in the life of Walt Disney. Well, what, that sounds like just a heck of a lot of fun also. Uh, but let me, let me get to this. One of Walt's greatest legacy is as the dreamer, which we'll cover more in the next segment. But for now, talk about the size of his dreams. 
and how in the heck he came to them. Well, Lee, I will tell you this. They were huge. You know, he never dreamed small dreams. Uh, his background is very interesting. He uh, grew up originally in Chicago, uh, a rather dysfunctional family. His dad was very hard on him. Uh, they did not have a strong relationship, uh, you know, with, with Walt as a youngster. Uh, eighth grade education, that was the extent of Walt's formal education. And uh, eventually, you know, they moved to a farm in Missouri. Walt loved that period in his life. But throughout this, he, he was a drawer. He was an artist, not a world-class artist, but loved to draw, loved to create characters. And he was always thinking you know, about where this might lead. So as a youngster, still in his teens, uh, he was working for the Kansas City Star newspaper in the art department, and they fired him, said he was lacking in uh, creativity. His imagination wasn't good <laughs> enough. And, and so at that point, Walt vowed he would never work for anybody else again, and he would always be his own boss. And uh, I think that was a key point in his career, in his life, when he made that decision. Uh, he always wanted to be in control of what he was doing. You know, there was an in interesting quote I wanted to read to you, and tell me what you think it means. But Walt said, I must explore and experiment. I am never satisfied with my work. I resent the limits of my own imagination. Now, that's a good point, Lee, and that's why uh, movies were so frustrating to him. Uh, you know, he, w he would try and get them to be absolutely perfect, uh, but inevitably, something would pop up, and uh, just when the film was finished, he'd see something uh, that he didn't like or that could have been better, and he'd try and fix it, but in many cases, he couldn't. And, you know, once that movie is done, it's, it's done. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. That's why when Disneyland came along much later, uh, Walt was so excited about that because... He could constantly be working on it, constantly be improving it. It was never finished. And if there was a flaw, Walt could always correct it and make it better. I think that's why he enjoyed Disneyland so much. Well, for the hour, Pat, we're going to be talking more about Walt Disney. I wanted to read one more quote that I just found so fascinating. We're going to go to a break and come back. This is Walt Disney. He said, if management likes my projects... I seriously question proceeding. If they disdain them totally, I proceed immediately. That may seem like the statement of someone who is just plain ornery, but in reality, it's an expression of Walt's creative genius. Walt believed that if everyone around him approved of his ideas, then he wasn't dreaming big enough dreams. Only when people opposed his ideas was he sure that the challenge was bold enough. This is Lee Habib, joined for the hour by Pat Williams who wrote, I think, the best book on Walt Disney, How to Be Like Walt. When we come back, more about this extraordinary life on this day in history brought to you by Hillsdale College, the day Walt Disney died.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to be talking about the great Walt Disney, who died on this day in history. And we're joined by Pat Williams, who's written over 80 books on leadership, including How to Be Like Walt. And Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, my pleasure. Thank you. You know, we just I just read you something uh, about, well, how Pat dealt with naysayers. And it turns out, Pat, that the very first naysayer in his life may actually have been his dad. Talk about that. Oh, I think that's truly his dad was rough on him. You know, <clears throat> the fact that Walt loved to draw and do artwork, you know, I, I think Elias Disney couldn't comprehend that. And uh, at one point he said, why don't you play the violin? You can always be in a band. <laughs> and and so there was a struggle there. There was a tension there. Well, let's face it, Walt was a... I can just picture him as a young kid, uh, Lee, uh, probably very much a free spirit. Uh, probably not the easiest kid to parent, uh, but his dad and uh, and Walt had their problems. And uh, now eventually, uh, you know, that was resolved. Years and years later, uh, Walt brought his parents out to Los Angeles after he was up and running and you know, it was a different relationship then, but as a young boy, it was, uh, I would, I would describe it as strained. That's, that's tragic actually, but he did gain something uh, from his dad, as you pointed out, and that was his, his father Elias's Protestant work ethic. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, his dad was a worker. You know, he was involved in uh, many different act, you know, many different forms of work, but he was a worker and so was Walt. Let's not ever forget the fact that you know, Walt just didn't come into the, this world with pixie dust, uh, you know, scattered all around him and uh, had this free ride to all that he did. He was an incredible worker, uh, never never took time off, really. You know, he lived in that office and probably worked to a fault. Although, when you really study him, Lee, he was a great uh, husband and a great father. You know, he always took time for his two girls. Uh, he was a good husband to Lillian. And uh, he knew that he uh, wanted to sp- spend time and take time to be with his family. Uh, drove, the sc- drove the girls to school every morning. Uh, so he was very conscientious in that regard. But the rest of the time, oh boy, he was deeply immersed in his work. Always working, always thinking, always planning, always dreaming, always imagining, you know, what could happen. And, and earlier, really, you made the point that uh, if everybody opposed an idea, Walt was for it. Uh, and that was the case. You know, if, if people agreed with him, Walt said, ah, it's not a big enough dream. And so he would uh, let them know he was thinking about making a full-length animated cartoon, Snow White and the, and, and the Seven Dwarfs, unheard of. Cartoons were eight minutes at the longest and if you went eight minutes and ten seconds, probably the whole world was going to collapse. And and so he came up with a, a full-length cartoon. And then years later, along came Disneyland. And uh, Walt had the whole thing pictured in his mind. Nobody bought in. His, his brother Roy thought he was nuts. I mean, there was not enough money to do it. Uh, his team was was very much opposed. And Walt took that as a good sign. 
Yep, yep. He took it as a if good they're sign. They're all opposed. It's, it's going to work. <laughs> it's going to work. You know, one of the things he may have learned from his dad also is this ability to survive uh, failure and also to incur and take on risk and, and have an appetite for risk, Pat. And one of the most incredible things about Walt's life is how he kept daring over and over again, pushing himself until he went into bankruptcy or close to it as a young man. Uh, talk about Walt's failures, because as so many of us learn in life, we, we grow the most and learn the most when we, when we fail. Well, Walt said, uh, there was a wonderful quote, he said, I think it's important uh, for anybody to have one good failure early in their career. And uh, listen, Walt had his share of failures. Uh, he went bankrupt, as, as far as I can determine, late 12 times. Two nervous breakdowns, many a setback. But the biggest setback occurred in 1927. He finally had come up with this delightful character, Oswald, the lucky rabbit. So he went to New York to check up on Oswald and see what was going on with his films and all. And he got the horrifying news that a New York huckster named Charles Mintz had pilfered Oswald on a legal technicality and had swiped all of Walt's key animators as well. So there is 27-year-old Walt with his new bride, Lillian. He gets this horrible news in New York. And, and what does one do? Well, he, he got on a train with his wife and headed back to Los Angeles. Well, Lillian later said, he, she, she said, Walt was so down, so dejected, he just lay there. He couldn't even sit up. Finally, about halfway across the country, Walt began to revive, and uh, he always had a thing for mice. So he sketched out a mouse. He was quite pleased with it, uh, already had a name for the mouse, Mortimer. Came over to Lillian's seat, showed him what he had done, showed her what he had done. Lillian was horrified. <laughs> Far too sissy a name, she said to Walt. So Walt went back to the drawing board while they were on the train, and when the train arrived at the L.A. train station, Walt had a new mouse, a new character, a new mouse with a new name. We've all heard of him. And years later, uh, Walt said, I hope we never lose sight of the fact that it all started with a mouse. And he also said, I never loved a woman as much as I loved that mouse. Uh, I would say, however, to Walt, I said, Walt, it didn't start with that mouse. It started with a word that you made up along the way. And, Lee, that word was stick-to-it-ivity. Stick-to-it-ivity. It's not in the dictionary, although it should be. But that's Disney ease for hanging in there, for persevering, for using tenacity. And when I study Walt, that's really the key to, to everything with him, uh, Lee. Uh, that doggedness, that determination, persistence. You know, he just wouldn't quit. He just kept he hanging in quit. there. He and, wouldn't uh, quit. Just kept kept battling. That's uh, I think that's the story of Walt. Pat, I want to play for you a clip from the PBS series American Experience about Walt Disney and that pal of his that you were just talking about. 
that mouse named Mickey. Walt Disney always talked about Mickey Mouse as being his alter ego. He would say that, you know, I'm closer to Mickey Mouse than I am to anyone else. Hey, Poodle! Here she comes! Mickey and Walt are talking to each other. Hey, Poodle! Here she comes! So he's got to do Mickey's voice. Someone's got to do it. So, of course, Walt does it. Because it's him talking to himself. So, Mickey, how you feeling today? You know, I feel great. Do you know, it wasn't an easy day. You know, maybe tomorrow, who knows? You know, let's get into a little bit of trouble. You and me. That was Neil Gabler and also Ron Suskind, both two terrific writers, as you know, Pat. And uh, talk a little bit about that, that relationship and that creativity and the depths to which Mickey was, in some respects, a part of and an alter ego of Walt Disney. By the way, we learned this about Charles Schultz, too, Pat, that it turns out that that uh, Linus wasn't his alter ego. It was Charlie Brown himself that was Charles Schultz's alter ego. And uh, speak to that, if you could. Well, Lee, I guess that's the, the story of animators, isn't it? They uh, actually become the characters that they're drawing or, or, or writing or filming, you know. And that was certainly the case with Walt. He had... He had Mickey's voice down, uh, created uh, different scenarios for Mickey, loved Mickey uh, as, uh, more than any human being. He, he, I, now, I often wonder, did he love Mickey more than Lillian? Uh, that would be a good discussion. But uh, that mouse was uh, the centerpiece of his life. And I'll tell you what, Lee, I live right here in Orlando in the middle of Disney World, and uh, I often wonder... What a miracle. Way back, they create this little mouse, and uh, today he owns the world. We had 62 million visitors to Orlando last year, and they all want to see Mickey Mouse. All because of a mouse. When we come back, more with Pat Williams, this remarkable story. And by the way, a uniquely American story, folks, as all these stories are on our American stories. When we come back, more with Pat Williams... More on Walt Disney himself on this day in history. The great Walt Disney died. celebrating the life of Walt Disney. Born in 1901, died on this day in history in 1956, and we're joined by Pat Williams for the hour. Pat is the author of a great book, How to Be Like Walt. He's also the senior vice president and co-founder of the Orlando Magic, so he knows just a little bit about, well, Walt Disney. And in fact, uh, if anything, this may have been, Pat, the, the biggest influence on your life, it sounds to me, in terms of the amount of time you spent, other than perhaps Jesus Christ. I don't think there's another person that's influenced you more. Am I right now to that, say that? That's a, that's a great point. You know, obviously, if I, I've had influences in my life uh, from uh, men that I worked with or who uh, 
became mentors, but Walt has become a a real mentor in my life. He's become an inspiration. Uh, he's become a motivator, you know, just through uh, talking to people who knew him, uh, reading extensively about him. And I, it's just, yes, he's become a huge part of my life. And Lee, I'll tell you, uh, one of the people that uh, really came alongside of me was Walt's daughter, and uh, Diane Disney Miller. She became quite a hero as I was working on that book. She was very generous uh, with her time with me, and then put me in touch with all of her children, Walt and Lillian's grandchildren. And I was able to speak to them, you know, in doing my research for, for that book, How to Be Like Walt. And then on the opening day of the uh, Walt Disney Family Museum, which Diane had overseen in San Francisco, I was invited to go to the opener of that uh, museum. And boy, what a thrill that was. Uh, yeah, what an honor that's got to be. Thrill. What an honor. You bet. And I got to meet Diane and see her. Let me tell you this. She was a spitting image of her father. I mean, if you wanted to know what Walt looked like, just go look at <laughs> Diane. That's great. And then I hey, was Pat, so, I... so saddened a few years later. Uh, she had a fall, a bad fall, and, and she died at age 79. And uh, I'm still very sad about that. Well, Pat, I wanted to start off with another clip from uh, the PBS American Experience. And this one is about Walt's salesmanship. American Motors, builders of Nash automobiles, Kelvinator home appliances, and Hudson Motor Cars present Walt Disney's Disneyland. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Each week as you enter this timeless land, one of these many worlds will open to you. Here now to tell you about it is Walt Disney. Welcome. I guess you all know this little fella here. It's an old partnership. I think he was one of the great salesmen of our time because he never tried to sell something he didn't personally believe in. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. That's it, right here. Disneyland, seen from about 2,000 feet in the air and 10 months away. Pat, salesman is a word many people look down on. But you say that Walt Disney's life proves that we shouldn't. And I might add that few people are artists and salesmen. Talk about both of those things, if you could. Well, Lee, I think it's important to talk about the genius of Walt Disney in this regard. He had wonderful ideas. He was always thinking, always creating, always planning, you know. But he also, uh, and, and, listen, and there are many people like that not to his extent, but many people. But Walt always knew what the public would buy. That was part of his genius. So he, he would create, but in creating, he also had a sense, he had a feel for what the public would buy. Because he was a businessman as well. You bet. And, and, and uh, when he would create a new film or create Disneyland or whatever he was creating... Uh, equally of importance to him was, will the public pay for this? Will they buy it? You bet. 
And, and he had and a feel. He and had a feel for And the, that's where his salesman came in, plus just an inst- an instinct on what the public wanted. Yeah, and he, had, he must have had a great feel for the country, and obviously a great love for his country uh, as well. But not a cynic as as far as his view of American values and what the American people valued. Pat. Well, Lee, there's no question about that. All you had to do was go to Disneyland and you know the Hall of Presidents. And that wonderful uh, speaking, Mr. Lincoln, I think that goes back probably to his Midwestern roots. Remember, he spent a good bit of time on a farm in Marceline, Missouri, which was really probably the highlight of his youth. And uh, he really got a sense of middle America, I think, uh, through that experience. You had a great quote in here. You talked about his salesmanship, and you said, a great salesman lives on repeat business, and the key to repeat business is trust, and the key to trust is integrity. Anybody can sell to one customer one time. A great salesman builds relationships of trust on a foundation of truth. And you also added that Imagineer Harriet Burns told you, Walt was a great salesman, and his best sales technique was his absolute honesty. He didn't use glib talk or flashy sales methods. He simply sold his ideas with honesty and sincerity. People could tell that he said what he meant and meant what he said. They trusted him, and that trust relationship made him a great salesman. Talk about that, Pat. Uh, It's so beautifully said. Isn't that beautiful? You know, and uh, I think that's uh, a good challenge for any of us who are in the sales business. Uh, that we, uh, we've got to be trustworthy. And, and I go back, way back, Lee, to my early days as a minor league baseball executive. I worked for a man in Spartanburg, South Carolina, Mr. Ari Littlejohn. He was the owner of the team. He used to say to me, there are many, many one-shot salesmen out there. Uh, they can come in and sell one time. But to come back a second time, that's the key. Uh, as to whether you're a good salesman. And, you know, the other kind of selling, Pat, and this is very important selling, is not only the external sale to the client or the customer, but it's the internal sale to your own team members, to your employees, to your executives. Talk about Walt's talent there when we come back on the other side of a break, Pat. I'm going to play a great clip. But talk about that other kind of selling to your own people. Well, if they're not enthused, Lee, if they're not uh, excited about what they're doing, uh, if they're not into it, uh, oh, I guess they can get the work done, but it's not going to be as it should be. Yeah, they're going to just be moping along. Walt had the the ability to get his people excited, enthusiastic, and it really triggered from his passion, his zeal. You know, it was infectious. Uh, they caught it from Walt. Uh, yep. If they saw Walt all pumped up and really into it, well, that spread like wildfire across his organization. Well, one of Walt's greatest sales feats is selling Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to his animators. We're going to play a clip right now that we had promised, Pat. One evening in 1934, Walt sent his entire staff out for an early dinner, but told them to hurry back to the Hyperion soundstage for an important company meeting. The room was buzzing by the time Walt took the stage. Disney is lit on the soundstage. And he then proceeds 
to act out alone, just him, a one-man show, the story of Snow White. What he did was to go through the whole movie as he saw it, acting out all of the parts, impersonating all of the characters, going through all the emotions, all the ups and downs, the queen, the princess, the, uh, the seven dwarves, even the animals. Walt's excitement was catching. We were just carried away, remembered one animator. I would have climbed a mountain full of wildcats to do everything I could to make Snow White. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Walt Disney, for the hour. He died on this day in history in 1966. We're joined with Pat Williams, and when we come back, we'll have Pat comment on that remarkable clip. Again, this is Lee Habib. We'll be right back. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps... This is Lee Habib, and for the hour, we're talking about the life and death of Walt Disney, who died on this day in history in 1966. And joining us for the hour, Pat Williams, who has written so many books on leadership and the, wrote the, I think, the best book that I've read on Walt, uh, How to Be Like Walt, because there's so much insight about so many aspects and dimensions of his life. Pat, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the fact that he was a sort of a servant based manager and he did a lot of managing by walking around uh talk about those two things and how well how he managed folks and got the maximum performance out of them well uh, i think that's a key to being a good leader lee uh the ability to get away from your desk or out of your uh, your silo and uh, get down among the people for example uh, george washington during the Revolutionary War, uh, eight years, Lee, he never left his troops. Yep. Uh, Walt, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., where was he? Well, he was out among the people. Well, that was Walt. He was uh, down among the animators. He would visit with them. He wouldn't overrule them. He he would uh, not uh, be a a pest to them, but he was, uh, they knew he was there, uh, that he was interested, that he was checking on things. And then, of course, Lee, when, when Disneyland opened, oh, my goodness, uh, Walt was out among the, the crowds. He, he, he would generally wear a disguise of some sort so he wouldn't get mobbed. Uh, but he wanted to know what the public was thinking and what they were, how they were reacting. And Walt just loved to be out among the people and out among his own people. Uh, he inspired them. He, uh, he got them pumped up. They, uh, they loved his presence. Now, having said that, Walt was not uh, the easiest boss in the world, Lee. You know, he was very sparse with his with his praise. Uh, if he said, uh, that'll work, <laughs> that was high praise from right, Walt. Right. Uh, he, uh, he had his own style of leadership and ha- how to do things. But if he said, uh, that'll work, oh, listen... Uh, his his employees would hear that they'd be thrilled. They that would keep him going for a year. Uh, so he had an interesting way of leading. But uh, you you have to say at the end of the day it was extraordinarily effective. 
You bet. It wasn't just the people he served either, uh, Pat. It was the art he served. And it required him to take a big dose of humility and make quite a lot of selfless decisions, didn't it? Oh, I think that's true. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any question about it. I think at the end of the day, you would describe Walt as a humble man. You know, I don't think he was stuck on himself. I don't think he, uh, you know, he listened to people. He wanted other people's ideas. But when he had a big one, uh, nothing was going to deter him. Uh, right. Even though even though people thought he was probably crazy, I I love the Art Linkletter story. Art Linkletter was probably Walt's closest friend away from the studio. So one Saturday, uh, Walt said, "Art, come with me. I want to show you something down here in Orange County." And so they drove down to this open field and citrus trees and swamp, marsh bogland. Who knows? And they took a walk around and 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 Walt. Uh, showed exactly to Art Linkletter what he was working on and where everything would go here for Disneyland. Well, they walked back to the car, and Art Linkletter uh, was there with Walt, and Walt said, Art, you want to go in with me on the deal? And Art said, "Eh, I think I'll pass, Walt. Later, Art Linkletter said, every step back to the car that day cost me $3 million a step, he said. <laughs> and then later, uh, years later, uh, Walt, Walt came to him again and wanted to talk about a theme park, another uh, Disneyland in, in Florida, and asked Walt, uh, Art's opinion, and Art said, oh, Walt, that'll never work. Just like there's one Grand Canyon, you know, there's only one Disneyland. Right. And, and uh, Art later said, uh, from that point on, uh, Walt just stopped asking me about my opinions. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. You know, I wanted to read something from your book, getting back to that humility part. Uh, during 1925, Walt fired himself as an animator. Quote, I was never happy with anything I ever did as an artist, he once reflected. From then on, Walt would serve as producer, director, coach, cheerleader, head storyteller. But as you write in your book, he would never animate another frame of film. Fascinating that one of the great animators in history fired himself from the animation department. Yeah, because he knew he knew that wasn't his greatest strength. Uh, he knew he had a team of animators who were absolutely the very best in their profession. And Walt was Walt could draw, and he was a a decent animator, but not at that level. And so he concentrated totally on uh, the other things. And and at that point, that company was growing, Lee. And uh, he didn't have time to just sit there, you know, doing animation. He had much bigger things that he had to contend with and worry about. Bigger dreams to deal with. He also talked in your book, Pat, about his service to art sometimes costing him dearly in the profit department and how Roy was always constantly worried about that. I want to read again from your book. Roy worried about the cost of Walt's quest for excellence. In 1930, the cost of one cartoon was $5,400. By 1931, it more than doubled to 13500 In 1932, Technicolor raised the price to around 23000 3500 more than the advance from United Artists. Disney's costs were so high that it took two years for a cartoon to show a profit. Talk about the brothers. You had one who seemed to be the ledger guy, yet another guy who was the dreamer. How did that work out? Oh, Lee, I think the, uh, the Walt and Roy Disney story is fascinating unto itself. The, the two brothers, uh, Roy was the older brother, 
Uh, and the, you're right, Lee. Uh, Walt was the uh, creator. He was the imagination guy. Uh, he was worried. He concentrated on all of the product. Uh, Roy somehow it had to be paid for, and Roy was the businessman, and he was the one that had to finance Walt's dream. Sometimes they really got into it and had some major disagreements. But in, in many other cases, uh, Roy would come to the rescue and, and come up with a plan where his younger brother's dreams could be paid for. But it is fascinating the way the two of them work together. Uh, without Roy, uh, we probably wouldn't know much about Walt Disney today. You bet. It's kind, of, the- like, it's kind of like Hewlett and Packard, right? You know, a, a business team. It's... Uh, Probably like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Yep. It's uh, it's like Rich DeVos and Jay Van Andel with Amway. Uh, it's like uh, Frank Wells and Michael Eisner later at Disney. Those those remarkable teams, two man teams that uh, made things happen. Yeah, no, we we're close to and are very grateful for Bernie Marcus's support. And he would tell you that that team of he and Arthur Blank that he couldn't have done what he could have done building Home Depot uh, without Arthur and also without uh, Ken Langone, who ended up running around and getting their their dreams financed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk about Walt Disney uh, and his desire to serve God and especially God's young children. Talk about this dimension of Walt Disney's life. I don't hear much about this, Pat. Well, he grew up in a church going home. You know, he's... uh... His mother and dad were both active in the church, and he uh, he grew up in that world. I think he knew the Lord, uh, Lee. Uh, he didn't talk about it, and I'm not sure that he was a a, a consistent churchgoer. But I think uh, you know he he knew that uh, God played a big role in what he was doing, and uh, it was all part of I guess maybe of his. American heritage, but I think there was a, a, a definitely a spiritual part of his life. To close the hour, Pat, Walt Disney shares the best advice he could ever give to young artists, and really, well, to all of us. The best advice I have ever given to students who have studied under me has been just this. Educate yourself. Do not let me educate you. I'm reading from Robert Henry in response to a question often asked in letters from art students. However they put it, it always boils down to this. Students become confused by honest admiration for one school of painting mixed with recognition of the success and popularity of another style along with advice to follow a still different approach. Frequently a student will ask which one he should imitate. Robert Henry would advise don't imitate anyone. He says, one of the great difficulties of an art student is to decide between his own natural impressions and what he thinks should be his impressions. And in another page, go forward with what you have to say, expressing things as you see them. Time after time in his art spirit, Henry says, be yourself. Pat, 30 seconds. We're closing out the hour right now. Final thoughts about Walt Disney and what you just heard. Great advice, isn't it? Be yourself. You can't be anybody else. God made each one of us uniquely. Uh, We're uh, just like snowflakes. There are no two that are the same. 
And that's good advice to all of us and, and great advice for young people. Don't, uh, don't be imitating others. You're a unique being. Uh, be, be yourself and carve your own path. And do your own thing. Be your own self. Boy, that's solid advice from Walden. What a great way to end our hour together, Lee. You bet. Pat, thank you so much for joining us, as always. The author of How to Be Like Walt, Senior Vice President of the Orlando Magic, co-founder as well. And also, remember that great Oscar Wilde line, Pat, be yourself, everyone else is taken. Thanks so much for joining us this hour, as always. Pat Williams. Lee, thank you so much. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Walt Disney. What a life it was. Died on this day in history in 1966. stories and we've told a lot of stories on our show about crime in america and about how we're generally safer today than we've ever been but also about how much more work there is to do in reducing crime and in reforming our criminal justice system in fact we've spent about four hours talking to people who are either in prison or have gotten out of prison and we've been also talking to some judges in texas about a remarkable 4c program and how they're trying to do a better job of sifting those folks who've just stumbled into crime and those people who are danger to society and then trying to get them back on track and get their lives on track. And today we're talking to Pastor Corey Brooks of the New Beginnings Church of Chicago, located on its south side. His church is on a street named after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but that street is now associated with drugs and violence and prostitution. A very different vision than Dr. King's. Let's talk to Pastor Brooks about his home, what's right, what's wrong, what he's doing to bring things back to the vision, the inspiration, the man behind that street's name. And Pastor Brooks, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show today. You know, Pastor Brooks, before we even begin, it's always fascinated me. Um, I've met many young African-American kids. When we talk about Martin Luther King, they always call him Dr. King. And I said, do you know what his doctorate was in? And there's a pause. And I said, it's divinity. Uh, Did you know that he was a reverend? And have you ever read letters from a Birmingham jail? And when I read that to him, and the name Isaiah is is enjoined, and when references to the Bible are continually enjoined, and when he says, ultimately, I'm in jail because I am seeking God's justice, not man's. And man's laws are at odds with God's. Tell me about just the understanding of Martin Luther King as you know it in your community and his biblical nature and his deep, deep desire for God's justice. Right. Well, you know, that's the principles that I live by. And and, uh, the book that you quoted out of was one of my favorite books. I read it um, and it touched my life when I was in the 12th grade um, of high school. And ever since that time, I've always been just mesmerized by Dr. King's thoughts and his philosophy. And I've always been a student of his. And one of the things that I know about Dr. King is that it was deeply rooted in in a God-fearing, being a God-fearing person 
and believing that ultimately uh, it's God who performs justice upon man and upon humanity. And so that's kind of the thing that I live by as well, that sometimes things are not going right in society. Sometimes there are injustices, and, and we should speak against those injustices when we have the opportunity. But we also need to realize that at the end of the day, it's God who is going to have the ultimate say. And when you really believe that and when you really think that, it helps to control your your actions personally on not having hatred in your heart, making sure that you're not trying to get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It just, it just becomes guiding principles. And so that's the reason why I try to live by a lot of what Dr. King wrote about and, and, and his, his thoughts and, 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 and try to portray some of those same things in my own life. You know, it's interesting when we celebrate uh, Reverend Martin Luther King's Day, and we always focus on the Reverend part, uh, we, we, we dig into 1963 and two competing visions for, the, for America and for the streets. And at the time, Malcolm X, who had not come to another side of his life yet, he was more along the uh, sort of militant Islamic space. And we were, comparing, we were comparing his speeches, and I mean, in his words, and he was really hard on Reverend King. In fact, at one point he had said, you know, those reverends keep saying, singing, we shall overcome, and they keep talking about their white brothers and sisters. And he goes, but I say we got to stop singing and we got to start swinging. And it was a radical departure from Dr. King's vision of seeing his white tormentors as brothers and sisters and with a deep forgiveness and a deep sense of love wanting to try and bring the country together with that vision. We don't hear enough about that, Pastor, when people talk about this great, great man of the Bible. You know, I I totally agree. And Again, you know, like I said, those are principles that I try to live by because I do believe that love conquers hate all the time. I do believe that uh, instead of being polarized and ostracized and not staying together because of our color and letting uh, racial issues divide us, we have to see ourselves as part of humanity, not just black, white, and brown, and red. We're all part of uh, of, of God's family, and and when we start looking at life through that lens, it helps uh, it helps us in how we treat one another. And so, for me, I've always uh, tried to promote um, love. I've always tried to promote racial harmony. I always try to promote being in the family of God because I believe that ultimately those are the principles um, that win all the time. And it may seem like sometimes that that the enemy is winning with these racial divides and things of that sort, but I believe ultimately uh, that, that, that racial harmony is going to prevail. Well, and that, that kind of vision is, is ultimately uh, a Christian vision. And in the end, Dr. King's power, Reverend King's power, didn't come from some secular source. It came from the life of Christ in the end, Pastor. Absolutely. And and I think Jesus Christ is what, as believers, we should put more emphasis on. And, you know, I, I, I am a black man in America, but even more than that, I'm a child of God, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and that trumps everything. And then when you look at life through that lens, it will have an effect on how you treat people. It will have an effect on the things that you do and say and how you live your life. And so for me, I just believe that trying to live Christ-like principles and apply them to your life is the way that we ought to go. Indeed. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about Pastor Corey Brooks's life 
He's a pastor at the New Beginnings Church of Chicago. And Project Hood is what he's all about, helping others obtain destiny, Hood. And we're gonna, we, we are going to regularly talk to Pastor Brooks over the next year. Uh, we want to hear from every part of our great country. And we need to hear great and courageous voices and leaders in every part of this country. When we come back, Pastor Corey Brooks, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Bono and what is perhaps his finest song, a tribute to Dr. King, a tribute to Jesus Christ in the name of love. And by the way, if you ever get to see the movie Rattle and Hum, there's a great scene where B.B. King goes backstage with Bono, and he's just written a song called When Love Comes to Town, and that's, of course, when Jesus comes to town, and people don't know what a deep Christian Bono is, but he is. And it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen, a white kid from Ireland an older black gentleman from the Mississippi Delta, and they were brothers. And that's the beauty of the Christian vision in the end. Uh, there is no race, there is no class, there is no age. It's just brothers and sisters. And we're joined by Pastor Brooks, uh, who is the pastor at New Beginnings Church of Chicago in one of the toughest neighborhoods in America, the south side of Chicago. And Pastor, let's get into your story. Talk about your early life as a child. Who were your parents? Uh, where did you come from? And what led you to this thing called being a pastor uh, in a place like the South Side, a tough neighborhood? Well, uh, I was born in a little town uh, called Kenton, Tennessee, K-E-N-T-O-N, and uh, on a farm uh, with my my, my single mom. Uh, she grew up with ten brothers and uh, uh, ten with with ten siblings, and so. I grew up with a big in a big family on a farm, and we moved up north uh, to to Muncie, Indiana, when I was about twelve years old. Uh, my mom got married, and so we moved there. And uh, grew up in a very abusive household, and uh, with a crazy stepfather who got drug addicted and things of that sort. And but my mother was always faithful and always prayerful, and always made me go to church with her. Uh, regardless of what was going on in our house, and and, and around about uh, eighteen, I, I I really came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and began to know what it was that the Lord wanted me to do with my life. And so, at nineteen, uh, I totally committed my ways to the Lord as far as what I wanted to do, uh, what He wanted me to do. Uh, I knew I was called to preach since I was fourteen years old, but I finally gave in at nineteen. 
And so I finished uh, high school and finished college in, at Ball State University, left Ball State University, went to University of Florida Law School, stayed there for a semester before I realized that I needed to be in seminary. So I left there and went to Dallas Theological Seminary and got called to pastor while I was there in my second year to a little church in Richmond, Indiana, and uh, finished at Grace Theological Seminary, traveling back and forth. And from Richmond, Indiana, I stayed there for four years, and then uh, the Lord led me to Chicago, and that's kind of how I ended up in in Chicago. And then, um, of course, we planted this church, and we decided to put it in the toughest area in Chicago at that time, and we called it New Beginnings Church to give people a new beginnings, and that's kind of the story. Well, it's an amazing story, Pastor, and that you decided to choose uh, Dallas as the seminary and then ultimately Grace, two tremendous institutions for training up the minds of young pastors. Because, my goodness, to, to be a pastor is a tremendous responsibility. And to not be trained up, Pastor, I think is a big mistake, and that you took that time. How important was that training in your development? It was very important, and um, it was very important in the training. You know, I tell people all the time that uh, if God calls you, you ought to have enough sense to go and prepare. And I wanted to make sure that I was prepared at um, the best possible place. And so I asked people questions, and 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 thankfully, everybody that I was talking to was saying, "Hey, go to Dallas, go to Dallas." And so. I instantly tried to go to Dallas, and, and, and I'm glad that I did because it was in Dallas that I got a great biblical foundation. And without that foundation, I don't think uh, I would be as strong as I am in the faith now, and I don't think I would believe in some of the godly principles that I believe in now. Dallas really, really, really gave me the foundation that I need and opened my eyes uh, to the Word of God, and that's the reason why I always love Dallas, and I always love Grace Theological, because they have such an appreciation and 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 and, and, and appreciation for inerrancy of Scripture uh, that that really blessed me to this day. You know, I, it's so interesting when I'm always mentoring young people. I actually just got off the co- conversation mentoring a lady who's 60 years old, whom I admire, and we're always coaching if we're doing life right. And often I'll just ask people. What do you want out of life? And do you want to do the work it requires to do it? And you, someone had to get a hold of you, I think, in the end. Or maybe you just had the, the, your own inner sense that if I'm going to do this thing and God's calling me. You know, Michael Jordan didn't sit around. He had a lot of God's talent. But he played for Dean Smith and submitted himself to a terrific coach. He could have just Absolutely. gone pro. He was a very wise man, Michael Jordan. And he didn't squander his talent. And, and so in that respect... It was a tough. It had to be a tough transition for you. You're, you. Most young men want to just get out and go do it, and you had to submit yourself to these people who were sort of really putting you through the ropes. And this is not a duck walk going to Dallas and and doing what you did. Absolutely. You know, um, I thank God for the fact that, for whatever reason, I've always wanted to be good in whatever uh, I committed myself to, whether it was sports or. Uh, academics or whatever. I just wanted to be the very best that I could possibly be. And so when I felt that God was calling me to preach and to be a pastor, I made up my mind, look, I don't want to just be some bootleg guy who's just out here not interpreting Scripture correctly and not leading people correctly. I want to be the very best that I can possibly be. And so for me, that meant 
uh, e- equipping myself, getting the right tools, getting the right resources in my life so that I can share my faith as effectively as possible and to minister as effectively as possible. So Dallas uh, provided that type of opportunity. And I tell people all the time who ask me, hey, where should I go to seminary? I tell them hands down, Dallas Theological Seminary, because it the biblical foundation and and the high authority of God's word at Dallas Theological changes lives. And I think when people come from all these various backgrounds with lots of different theologies that are floating around, you need a place to be get you well grounded. And that is what was provided at Dallas. And I think people need that. And so I'm glad that I got it. And it, it it definitely equipped me uh, to be able to do the work that I do now. Indeed, and uh, and we're you know if we believe what we believe as Christians, and uh, there's spiritual warfare occurring all the time. And I think yes. you know to, for people to pinpoint the inner city streets as the only place where there's spiritual warfare hasn't spent some time in gated communities where there's plenty of spiritual warfare. And that's the beautiful Absolutely. thing about being a Christian. My goodness. Judge not thy, that person in front of you. And poverty is not just a material condition. I've met some very rich people who are indeed some of the poorest people I've ever met in my life. And let's talk about those streets, though, Pastor. Why you chose those streets. What's going on in those streets. Paint a picture uh, for the folks who don't know the south side of Chicago or maybe just from a random headline of a kid randomly getting shot. Right. Well, in Chicago, we're experiencing this morning, they said on the radio that uh, I was listening to, that Chicago is experiencing the highest murder rate than we've had in two decades. Uh, We've had over 700 murders. Most of them have been committed by young African-American males killing young African-American males. And unfortunately, we live in an environment where it's very tough on young kids. Uh, You know, they, they don't have the opportunity to walk to school oftentimes without some type of security measures. It's, it's almost, um, dangerous to allow your child to even go, uh, play in a park, uh, to walk the streets by themselves because the potential of danger and gun violence is so prevalent in Chicago. Just yesterday, we were talking to a group of young boys that one of our pastors mentors, he mentors, uh, seventh and eighth graders. And he was saying that, um, we really need to pray and work hard because some of the seventh and eighth grade boys that he mentors had come to them and came to him and asked him to pray for them because they were afraid. They were afraid that they were going to get shot. And I thought how bad that is that a young boy can't even walk to a playground, can't even walk to a store, can't even walk across the street to a McDonald's because he's afraid that he's going to get shot. That's the type of environment we live in here in Chicago, and it needs lots and lots of prayer. And lots of love, too, Pastor Brooks, lots of love. When we come back, more with Pastor Corey Brooks, New Beginnings Church of Chicago, and his project is called Project Hood, Helping Others Obtain Destiny. It's a beautiful story, a tough story. And when we come back, more with Pastor Corey Brooks. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib.
And that's B.B. King and Bono, When Love Comes to Town. Beautiful song. We're talking to Pastor Corey Brooks, New Beginnings Church of Chicago. And Pastor, let's talk about the boy problem in Chicago. Why do boys join gangs? Well, there are a number of reasons why these young men are joining gangs. You you have over 70% of the households in Chicago inner cities that are single-parent households. You have young men who are growing up without fathers. And not only are their fathers not in the home, their fathers are not in the community because a lot of them have been uh, locked up or incarcerated. And as a result, you have boys who are looking for attention, boys who need guidance, boys who need fathering, and there's they don't get it. And, and the gang ends up providing them the camaraderie um, the brotherhood, the fatherhood that, that every young man needs. And you couple that with the fact that there's so much poverty as well. A lot of these young men see it as an opportunity to eat and a, an opportunity to take care of themselves. And so you have them getting mixed up in, in, a, in a, an environment, in a gang lifestyle that sometimes is a result of just being in a tough, tough environment. Indeed, and of course, the fact that you know spiritual there, there's no spiritual there's no spiritual guidance, and that's uh, that's first and foremost. You know, my dad had gotten me involved. I grew up in a in a, in a in a mostly white suburb in northern New Jersey. I was a very good basketball player, and so my dad said, "If you want to be good, we're going to go into Newark and I drop you off at a place called the Pool, and you're not going to tell mom, and you're going to go in there and you're going to play ball." And my dad was doing this for a couple of reasons. A, he wanted to get me to play with some of the best ball players in the state. But second, he wanted me to understand life and to empathize with people different than me. And he didn't worry about my safety. And he was right not to. I was taken in. I was treated actually more specially than everyone else. And uh, it became a life-changing experience to me. And what I, what I kept seeing over and over again, when I would visit a church, for instance, pastor, I just didn't see many men or boys. I was shocked at the number of women and yet no men, and it, and it hit me. And then I would talk to young men, and I'd say, hey, you know, guys 18, 19, 20, and my white counterparts, they had girlfriends, they were thinking about maybe getting engaged. But when I would talk to young black men about getting married, they looked at me like I'd sprung a new head. And I, I'd ask them, when's the last time you've been to a wedding? Like normal questions, right? When's the last time you've been to a wedding? Nothing. I mean, I didn't get a, a single person to say they'd been to a wedding, ever. Yeah. Uh, uh, just a staggering things. Where where does that come from, Pastor? Uh, we know that in the 1930s that wasn't the case. 1940s, even in the heart of the segregated South, as demonic as that was, uh, the black family was intact. Um, where does this come from, Pastor? It's now starting to happen to the white community, too. Right. I think the further we move away from godly principles, the further we move away from what the Bible says, the further we move away from the Spirit of God, that we're going to continue to see uh, these results. And as you just said, it's not just happening in the African-American community. It's now spreading in other communities as well. And that is because uh, there is a, a definitely a, 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 a lack of uh, spirituality, godliness, and, uh, the, the, the fear of God, and, 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 and wanting to live a, a God-like, a Christ-like lifestyle. And that to me, I believe, is the driving force uh, behind uh, all the issues that we see, especially in the inner city when it comes to these young men 
Uh, we've got to move people back to the Word of God. We've got to get people back to uh, a Bible uh, lifestyle, especially as a result, as it relates to uh, the family. And if we could do that, I think things would be a lot better. Now talk to, talk to me and our audience about what steps you're taking to engage young African-American males in the South Side. By the way, it so helps to have role models. I mean, young men respond, and everybody will always say, oh, I'm not a role model. Well, of course we're role models. Every single one of us as human beings are going are gonna to be watched by young people, and those young people are going to model themselves after what we do. So talk Absolutely. about, talk about A, the lack of role models, and then you walk into a room, and you're this strong man, you're an adult, and how do the young men react to you? Do they make fun of you? Do they just not sell what you're buying? I mean, buy what you're selling. Talk about that initial interaction with a strange young male you've never met before, and you're, you've got this the title called pastor. How do they react to this? Well, here in Chicago, um, I try to be a model. I try to be a model for what I'm asking other men to do. So I'm not the type of guy who's asking a bunch of guys to become a mentor and to love these young brothers and give them opportunities and chances without doing it myself. I try to make sure um, that I model mentorship, that I model manhood. So that means taking a responsibility for my family. That means uh, taking responsibility for my community. That means making sure that people know that I love God, and, and I don't apologize for that. So I try to do those things, and then I try to make sure that I'm mentoring. I mentor a lot of people. I mentor older guys who who are out who are fresh out of the uh, prison systems uh, or trying to get out of gangs who are trying to change their lives. Uh, I also mentor high school high school high school boys and younger kids. You're going to always see me with some men with some young boys trying to be a, a positive role model, trying to be a mentor, and trying to help them change their lives. Because if we don't uh, be, if we're not models and if we're not mentoring, then our community is going to continue to be in trouble. So mentoring has to become a big, big part where you're where where a person starts saying, you know what, I'm not just responsible for my two sons, but I'm going to make sure that I, I help be responsible for these other ten young boys who who have no clue where their father is or whose father may be uh, dead because he was shot and killed. I'm going to take responsibility for them too. And that, and that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to do because we tend to want to be selfish. We tend to want to take care of our own, but in this day and time, we cannot be the type of individuals who just look out for our family. We have got to look out for others as well. You know, you said something interesting there, pastor, and that is in a sense, we got to put more bodies on these boys. One of the things I felt as I spent time and I still continue to is that, that, that so many of these boys feel a lack of love. And in the end, it's love that they're missing. And that when they first encounter real masculine love, it's very different than anything they've ever encountered before. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, a lot of these young men have never really experienced manly love or godly love for that fact. And so when they do, it breaks them. I think um, one of the things that, that uh, changes lives is when people see someone genuinely care for them, not because they're trying to get something out of it or not because it's going to be mentioned on the news or in the newspaper, but just to care because you really care. That has a tremendous impact on a young man's life. And so 
um, that's what we try to show. We try to show them that, hey, we care about you. We care about your future. We care about where you are. And we do it uh, with a non-judgmental attitude. A lot of these young men come from some very tough and troubled backgrounds. Yep. But, but the way we break them is by caring for them and breaking them uh, by showing them as much love as we unconditional love as we could possibly show them. I think that's key, the, the word unconditional. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about those relationships. And then we're going to take folks to the Super 8 Motel in a remarkable story. But first, I want to talk to you, Pastor, on the other side of the break about the skepticism and the cynicism of so many of these young men. Because every time I would reach out and try and help, they go, what's in it for you? Why are you doing this? Like, they, they just couldn't believe that someone would want to help them. And, oh, that just broke my heart more than anything. That they just didn't trust in anything, in anybody. Life was a jungle, and you had to just take care of yourself or die. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Pastor Corey Brooks. More after these messages. And he's the pastor of New Beginnings Church of Chicago and the south side of Chicago. American Stories in our final segment for the hour, Pastor Corey Brooks, whom we want to just make a regular. We'd like to talk to him at least every other month and find out what's going on in his neighborhood, how we can help him, and how as we grow this show, our affiliates can help him. And others listening who are uh, sort of experiencing some of the same problems can learn from Pastor Corey Brooks and what he's up to. Uh, We were talking about before the break the skepticism of these kids uh, talk about that, and then I want to get to that super motel. Talk about the the cynicism of so many of the kids, and it's earned. I, if I were one of these kids, as I walked in their shoes, I'd be cynical too. Yeah, you know, a lot of these young men have had a lot of broken promises, a lot of dreams that have been destroyed, and so uh, they end up being pessimistic. They end up losing hope. They end up losing any drive. And they end up losing just believing that someone could come along and come into their life to help them. And so a lot of times you have to work your way through that pessim- that pessimistic attitude and that, 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 that sense of hopelessness. And you got to keep being there and you got to keep promises. That's really big um, because they're looking for you to break a promise. They're looking for you not to fulfill something that you said you're going to do. And so commitments and promises and things of that sort are very, very critical in making sure that you move these kids out of being so uh, pessimistic and, and, and having so much cynicism. We, we, we're we living in a day and a time where, where hopelessness is abounding. And so it's our goal uh, here in Chicago and with Project Hood to give these kids as much hope as possible, to give these kids as many opportunities as possible, to give them some loving mentors and to show them that, hey, it can be done. And the way you do that is continually role modeling before them success stories. And so I'm really thankful that we are creating some success stories. And so these young men can see some of their friends changing their lives. They can see some of their fathers finally getting jobs. And and it's a slow process, but it's a very rewarding process. Well, you know, building trust is, Pastor, as you know. It's not one act at a time. It's being there. It's being consistent. I'll never forget. I promised young Daryl, who was one of the young guys I was helping, and I was always there. One day, I just my car broke down, 
And when I finally got there, it was, yeah, I knew this would happen. I knew you'd find, and he just ripped into me and his boys ripped into me. And it was like, my car broke down, guys. I had to be on time and ready to go like the next nine times. And finally they realized I cared and that the local uh, Catholic church, uh, St. Benedict's cared. And we were trying to get young kids and young, young African-American men into this, into this school, especially the one that we identified as having talent, or we tried to get them into the Marine Corps. One of those two things. We're always identifying young guys, trying to find institutions that could save them. Let's talk about the super motel, if you could. What was going on in that part of the neighborhood, and what did you and your congregation do about it? Well, across the street from our church and in our neighborhood, it was, you know, we, like I said, we planted a church in one of the toughest neighborhoods in Chicago. And across the street was an old abandoned motel where there was prostitution and drug dealing and just a lot of, uh, uh, of destruction that was going on. And so our church decided to do something about it. We, we wanted to see change. And we thought, listen, we can't create change and we can't do something about this block and across the street. So we started to protest on Fridays and Saturdays in a godly way. We would bring music outside. Uh, we would uh, be out in the streets until 2 or 3 in the morning where a lot of the prostitution was. And we just stopped a lot of the trafficking. And we stopped the trafficking so much uh, that the hotel owner had to uh, go out of business. And once he went out of business, uh, we decided to try to get that property and, and purchase it so that we can turn it into a community center for kids. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, I went on the roof of a motel for 94 days, and I stayed there until I raised $450,000 to purchase that building so we could tear it down. And now we're trying to build a community center that we believe uh, that is going to help change the lives of a lot of people for a very long time. And by the way, those who are inclined, projecthood.org help with that community center. Put something beautiful in place of something ugly. There are so many vacant buildings all around Chicago. And Pastor, you've gotten all kinds of folks to replicate what you did. Talk about that. Well, there there are people who are taking abandoned buildings and, and trying to make sure that they turn them into to, to places of positivity, uh, places where they can promote uh, peace, harmony, and love, and doing something for the community. And just for instance, um, uh, we've been giving a Walgreens that went out of business, and they like what we do, or they like what we do, and they, they see the things that we're doing, and they said, hey, here's the building, we're no longer going to use it but you take it over and use it for the community. And so we're putting programs uh, in that um, in that Walgreens and we're at that old Walgreens building, and it's going to be a place that is going to help uh, create a lot of businesses. We plan to do a lot of entrepreneurship training uh, because we believe that free markets is one of the way we move people out of poverty. So we got to teach people how to eat and how to fish for themselves and fend for themselves and create a livelihood for their families. And so that's the type of things that we're trying to do uh, in the city of Chicago and other people are doing as well. Well, and that kind of economic empowerment is so important. I think so often we wait for government solutions. And in the end, well, that is not about empowering or giving agency to the individual. And this is the other thing I saw so little of in the inner city. And so many people come to this country poor, but they have agency. If you think and you believe and you have the support system to move out of poverty, you can in this country. But if you don't believe you can, and if you have nobody to help you do that, how do you do it? And so what I really saw time and again, Pastor, was I just the, 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 the sympathy I felt, the empathy I felt for these young men. How could I have done what I did? 
uh, without my dad. There was one pro- program I think you'd be fascinated with. We were trying to take kids in Newark, bring them into jobs in Newark, in, in New York City, uh, apprentice jobs, architecture, lawyers, doctors. And one required that the kids have a tie and chinos. Well, most of them didn't even know how to tie a tie. No one had right. ever sat down with these 17, 18-year-old boys to tie a tie. And it was just, I just went, oh, my goodness. Talk about the advantage I have in life. And by the way, it's not a wealth advantage. It's a father advantage. Um, I had a dad to teach me that. I wasn't wealthy, but he taught me this stuff. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, that's what it's really all about, giving kids an opportunity and having showing them options giving them things that they have not had an opportunity to get because a lot of times people are living in conditions because they feel as if they don't have any options. They feel as if they don't have any opportunity. They feel as if there's no support system. So our thing is helping create a support system that will help people have opportunities and options. And when they have that, they will start to flourish. When people start to have a system around them, uh, a, a support system with loving, caring people that care about their livelihood, care about their their family, that's when they start to thrive and that's when they start to succeed. And that's when they start to move away from the need of having government in their lives, uh, trying to dictate to them how to live their lives. We really do promote. We want as less government as possible. And we don't want people staying on uh, welfare and things of that sort, although they may have to use that, but that needs to be a short-term thing, not a long-term lifestyle. And that's what we're really about in in promoting. Yeah, and accountability, too. And what's wonderful is once these young men get... By the way, they experience in sports. If there's one place in the inner city where I saw nobody lowering expectations, those coaches never said, oh, your mom's got a problem, don't show up on time. Oh, your mom's got a problem, you can have an attitude coming to practice. No, uh, it was remarkable watching athletic coaches never lower the bar on these kids and watching the kids rise up and exceed anyone's earthly expectations, Pastor. Absolutely. You know, it's all about accountability. It's all about what you expect. That's what you're going to get. And so we expect for people to raise their standard of living. We expect for people to take advantage of these options, and we're not going to allow you to make excuses. Yes, life may have been unfair to you. Yes, things may not have gone your way. Yes, you may have come from an abusive neighborhood and an abusive lifestyle, but here are are opportunities, here are options, and we expect for you uh, to take advantage of it. And we're not going to allow anything less than that. And I think when you raise the bar and when you create a support system and you fill it with lots of love and you wrap it with grace and Christ, things can change. You bet. And one last thing, Pastor, because the other thing I, I recognize, Joey, and I think the reason my dad had me in these neighborhoods is because I experienced amazing joy. I mean, I was always thinking, oh, the picture of Newark and Life magazine, the dead bodies. But my goodness, they're remarkable people. I had lots of fun. I had great laughs. And so there's beauty and love and life all over the streets of Chicago and all over the South Side. And it gets painted with such a broad brush by the media as just mayhem and darkness and violence. And that's not true. Absolutely. There are a lot of great things about Chicago and a lot of great things about the South Side of Chicago a lot of great things about even some of the most tough, even some of the toughest areas and toughest environments. You can still find some wonderful things. My wife often tells me 
don't miss the donut looking at the hole. And a lot of times I think that's what happens with a lot of people in every facet of life, whether you're in the city of Chicago or the suburbs or in, in a rural area in Mississippi. Sometimes we miss life and we miss the joy of life by constantly staring at the hole, by constantly looking at what's uh, the negative parts of life. And so I want to I, I spend my life encouraging people to see things differently, encouraging people to love hard and give it your best and as help as many people as you can. I believe that one of these days I'm going to have to give an account. And when I die, I want to stand before the Lord and I really want to hear him say, well done. And that's, that's what it's all about. Well, let me tell you, that's the ultimate accountability. And for those of us who are believers, that keeps us in line. And that's no cop and that's no government. That's the big guy. And for us believers, that's all that matters. Pastor Corey Brooks, New Beginnings Church of Chicago. What an inspiration. Uh, Pastor, if we could, we want to keep in touch with you. We want our audience. I know our audience wants to keep hearing from you. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for showing the love to these kids who so deserve it. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on, and I appreciate it so much. You bet. This is Our American Stories, the south side of Chicago, a part of this country, an important part of this country, and we're bringing you stories from all over this country here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.